We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 184. Man, this is a good one. Our guest today is such a force in the equestrian industry, and I am so happy that she came on to tell her story. She is an equestrian. She has cerebral palsy. She was the captain of the equestrian team at Brown, and now she works for Special Olympics New York. She is working on some huge initiatives, and she is such an amazing advocate for the sport and really trying to raise awareness for Special Olympic athletes within the equestrian industry. She is also working on a huge project for No Star Up November that I am so excited to be a part of. So make sure you head over to my equestrian style and I will tell you all about it. But you will definitely hear about it in this episode. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Lauren Reicher. Can't wait to hear everything, but um, obviously want to start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you find yourself on a horse and, and kind of walk me through that story of that first experience? Sure. So I was born with cerebral palsy. And so basically what that means for the folks listening who don't know what that is, it manifests differently for everybody who has it. But in my case, the thing that really affected me was that my brain didn't recognize my legs as two separate entities. It basically thought that I had a mermaid tail. Mm -hmm. So I never learned to crawl. I never learned to walk. You know, my legs did not work independently of one another. And when I was diagnosed at 18 months old, what the doctors told my parents was that I was never going to eat, that I was never going to sit, I wasn't going to walk, and I wasn't supposed to talk. And that's all because the main symptom, so to speak, that I was dealing with was really extreme tightness, stiffness throughout my body. So the reason why they didn't think I was going to be able to eat, for example, was because my chest was so clenched that I couldn't keep food down. I was fed through an eyedropper at night. You know, when I was asleep, they propped my mouth open and fed me through an eyedropper. And so for the same reason, they didn't think I was going to be able to talk. They didn't think I was going to be able to, you know, get enough core strength to literally produce sounds. And, you know, the legs were a completely separate thing. It was just that, you know, they really didn't work independently. So, you know, as I started to become a, a child, not so much, you know, an infant or a toddler, three years old, getting ready to go to preschool, kindergarten, and not crawling, not walking. I was in a wheelchair. And, you know, I was going to more than 30 hours a week of physical therapy, occupational therapy, food therapy, speech therapy. And even though I had kind of defied the original diagnosis of being able to speak and being able to kind of sit up as long as I had my back prop, you know, there were a lot of things that were left unknown. So, my rehab specialist recommended to my parents that they bring me to therapeutic horseback riding. And the idea was that therapeutic horseback riding would require me to sit upright on the horse in the saddle with my legs apart. And that moving with the horse, my body rocking with the horse was going to eventually teach my legs how to be separate. So I, they, my dad brought me to my first lesson and he was an absolute deer in the headlights. He was thinking to himself, you know, why would I put my tiny physically impaired, impaired child on top of a moving horse? doesn't make any sense. 
And, you know, they calmed him down. And because my legs didn't separate, he recommended to the riding instructor that they take the saddle off because he didn't think my legs were going to fit around the horse and that they were going to have to hold me on the horse on my knees. So when, I mean, I was three, I was a peanut. So when, you know, my dad brought me over to the mounting block and they picked me up on the horse, which by the way, was, you know, an 18 hand Clydesdale for my first lesson. Of course. Um, Of course, had to be the biggest horse in the entire barn. You know, he picked me up and my legs went like that on their own. I'm doing a motion. I don't know if people are going to be able to see. But yeah, my legs separated on their own for the very first time ever. It was my largest physical milestone to date. No like medical or scientific explanation for what happened in that moment. But, you know, I sat upright on the horse for a 30 minute lesson and walked around the ring. And within 10 weeks of that first lesson, I could walk with a walker, taking reciprocal steps. So that's kind of how I fell into horseback riding. And it became pretty obvious that that was going to be, you know, a lifelong thing for me. Besides the fact that it gave me so much confidence, it was extremely therapeutic physically for me. Woo, that like gets me every time. (laughs) That's, I mean, it's so incredible. It's such a testament to like, how powerful and amazing horses are in our lives and Mm -hmm. something that kind of just seemed like, you know, you had a ton of therapies and a ton of things like, why not just try this and see, maybe it'll help, maybe, and like to experience that right off the bat. Yeah, you never know what's just going to work. So cool. So you are obviously continuing to ride. How soon did it take uh, for you to be like so hooked besides the fact that, I mean, you were super young. Instantly hooked. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Instantly hooked. It was instantly every single day. When are we going riding again? It was pretty obvious that, you know, I just loved it. So I continued doing therapeutic riding for a few years, but eventually, you know, the riding instructor said to my dad, she's nuts about it. And she tries so hard and she's come such a long way. If you are willing to drive her to my barn, which was in middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, you know, I'd be willing to take Lauren on as a private student and I'll teach her to ride on her own. And my dad, you know, even though he could see for himself, the progress I had made was not convinced that I'd be able to ride on my own. Yeah. So my dad, we, we didn't tell my mom, but my dad took me out of school every Friday. He would, I would get dressed in my school uniform, Nuh-uh. go to school and check in with my teacher. And then my dad would pick me up and we would drive to Pennsylvania Stop. so I could take riding lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and my mom, I don't know if she's going to listen to this, but she never knew. <laughs> oh my god! never told her. Well, so <laughs> yeah, I went to this, I went to this guy's barn. His name is um, Ben Goldberg. And I went to his barn every Friday and took lessons on one of his ponies. And Eventually, yeah, he taught me how to do, you know, how to post to the trot by myself where I could steer, you know, go around the ring on my own. And, you know, that was so meaningful for me because I was hooked in all elements of horses, even as a young kid, before I had any idea about showing the hunter jumper world about anything. I was like, this is for me. So once I could ride by myself, that was the most meaningful thing that I had in my life because you know, I'm born and raised in New York City. So Horseback riding after school is not something that people just do in my class. And for, you know, for me, I was extremely isolated in school because I was the only disabled kid in the entire school and I didn't do the 
traditional, you know, stick and ball sports and after school activities that other kids did. Because after school, if I didn't have riding, I went to physical therapy for four or five hours every day after school. Wow. So, you know, to have something that was so unique, it was, you know, it's not just you can teach anybody to shoot a basketball, but, you know, there's a learning curve to riding. You don't learn how to trot by yourself on the first lesson. Sure. So, you know, that was mine. And so I was, I was hooked for sure. That's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. So you went from, you know, doing this in a therapy setting, then mm-hmm. sneaking out and getting some riding lessons. <laughs> <laughs> At what point were you then kind of thinking like, man, like I could, mm-hmm. I could like really do this. I could like, yeah. and like all this stuff. I did my first lead line show when I was like seven or eight. And I was so tiny back then that I passed as like a four-year-old. So I did lead line and my dad still, even being at the show thought, you know, lead line is especially at like local shows and the one that I went to, at least it was definitely more of a recital than a competition. You know what I mean? Everybody got a blue, whatever. So we weren't convinced. Then we have, my parents eventually decided to, you know, it was kind of a family idea, but they got a house on Long Island and it was bordering, literally sharing a fence with a hunter jumper barn, a real hunter jumper Hmm, barn. And so before they decided to get that house, they brought me over to the barn. The idea was I wanted to ride every weekend. So if they weren't willing to have me, we weren't going to get for something else. Um, or find a house that was closer to a barn that would have me. And then, you know, they had me come out for a few lessons. I mean, I get the liability issues with having a disabled rider. So they hadn't, I don't, we didn't know if they'd ever had one before and they welcomed me. And right away I was on the nicest pony, the nicest little small pony. And, you know, I, within a year of riding um, with them, they told my dad about the Long Island Horse Show series for riders with disabilities. It's, we call it Lazard is the acronym. And if you've ever been to the Hampton Classic, you know that the Monday of the Hampton Classic, which is the schooling day, is when Lazard has its summer, you know, its summer finals, right? Its championship. And so they said, Lauren, you have to qualify for that. You, you got to do it. It's perfect for you. Because the way it works is that you, when you submit your proof of disability, you can add in, like, for example, my ankles are really stiff. So heels down is probably the hardest thing for me. I wear a special brace in my boot. You can kind of see it now that I wear tall boots. Like it's not as obvious, but when I was wearing paddock boots and garters, you could see it. So, you know, there are certain things that you could mark. So on my form, my trainer would put struggles with heels down. So the judge sees that and doesn't judge you on that. So the idea is that every rider is judge its equitation according to what they can do and not what they can't. So the, I went, I did that for the first time in 2009. I qualified for the Hampton classic and I got reserve champion. And that was my, oh my first gosh. big show. I love it. Um, you know, I had gone to day shows and local shows maybe once or twice a year, but that was the first time I'd ever been to anything like that. So when that turned out to be reserve champion, you know, I said, I could show, I could really do this. And I, you know, I've stuck with it ever since. Amazing. At that point, what were you able to do on a horse? Like, where did you feel like your um, level was at? I, at that point, 
I was really confidently walking and trotting by myself, trotting over poles and, and some small cross rails. At that nice. point, I hadn't learned how to canter yet. I was, this was in 2009. It must've been like 10 ish or something like that. But what, the reason why it took, and it wasn't until much later that I learned how to canter because that one moment where the horse picks up the canter and kind of scoots into the canter was back then enough to get me off. So even though I could grab the mane as tight as I possibly could and pop over a little cross rail, I still hadn't learned to canter, but I was for the most part, I could ride into flat class by myself and, you know, I was completely in control. So cool. So as you were growing up, kind of finishing out your, your junior years, then college came. So tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. So I was heading into college. So in between 2009, that Hanson Classic, I took a break from showing until literally 2015, where I did the same circuit and got grand champion. And then I was grand champion again in 2016. So that was the summer before college. So, you know, I was sorry, the summer before I graduated high school, not like summer before college. But at that point, I was thinking, I was thinking about colleges. I have, I have a super intense tiger mom. And so college was on her mind for me since I was a kid. And our college counselor told her, you know, a questioning is so unique. That's going to be Lauren's ticket to whatever college she wants to go to. That it's not, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of girls in the U.S. who do volleyball and soccer. And equestrian is different. And because, you know, it's so intertwined with who she is, it's going to definitely send her to college. So, you know, I was interested in writing for a college team and Brown was instantly my favorite school from the moment I visited it. It was the first college I toured out of, you know, some 20 something colleges. Mm -hmm. And I knew right away that that was where I wanted to go. And when I got in, the first thing I did was talk to the coach. Her name is Michaela Stanlon. And I told Michaela about my riding history, you know, at that, you know, by then I was walking, trotting, cantering, and I could jump, you know, a solid, you know, a bigger cross rail course, or maybe some small two foot-ish verticals, you know, on the flat, I was really solid. So I, I thought there shouldn't really be a reason why I wouldn't be able to join the team, even just as a flat rider. And I didn't know, because, so because the Brown Equestrian team is a varsity sport, whereas a lot of the colleges I went to, they were club sports, I didn't know if the athletic department would have me. I, I would have been the only disabled athlete at Brown, at least at that time. And I didn't, I wasn't sure if there had ever been riders with disabilities on the Brown equestrian team before. So, you know, I, I tried out just like all the other people Brown equestrian never recruited. So everybody was a walk on and, you know, the team to say that they embraced me would be an understatement. It was really, really special. It was the first time that I had really been on a team in that sense. And of course, when you go to a show with your barn, that is your team, but it's not the same as having teammates. And that was the first kind of taste I got of that. It wasn't until I got to Brown and got on the Brown Equestrian. And it, you know, it made, it made me feel so good that not only was I allowed to be on the team and practice with the team, they, you know, they let me show, which I thought wasn't going to happen. And what made showing, you know, one thing that I think made college showing a little bit different and gave me a little bit and definitely, I don't know how I should say this, but maybe leveled the playing field for me a little bit 
is that right at these IHSA shows, you walk out to the center of the ring to mount your horse. So the judge sees me walking out to the ring on mm, my crutches. Yeah. Sees, you know, the, the, you know, the huge effort that it takes to get me on the horse and then sees me flat like all the other riders. So, you know, that, that was, you know, I don't, I never felt like I was getting a handout or being judged differently, but you know, it was, it was meaningful, you know, yeah. to everybody who was there to see that. Right. So, you know, the Brown Equestrian team was special for sure. I love how you went from like, hoping that you could, you know, make the team. And then by the end, weren't you captain? (laughs) Yes, I was. My senior year, I was captain. I couldn't even believe it. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. I wanted to take a moment to talk about our wonderful sponsor today, The Modern Horse. If you haven't heard of them before, The Modern Horse is a seasonal subscription service which features equestrian life and style products curated for riders, horse owners, and equestrian lifestyle enthusiasts. Their feature product, The Bitbox, is mailed to subscribers each season every three months and contains five to ten products including clothing, beauty, home decor, leather goods, and more, valued at over $250 and sold in a quarterly or annual bundle subscription. As a brand, The Modern Horse seeks to provide products which feature small female-owned businesses, luxury retailers, and upcoming items to provide subscribers with something they will love in each box. So to find out more and to get your first box, visit their website at themodernhorse.com. That's themodernhorse.com. Thank you so much, The Modern Horse. All right, let's get back to the episode. As you finished up your college career, what were you kind of looking um, forward to, you know, kind of entering your professional career? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to like take your question a little bit different and just back it up a tiny bit. So the therapeutic writing organization that I started with eventually became what is now Gallup NYC. It's this nonprofit writing organization that offers therapeutic horsemanship to kids, teens, adults, and post-combat veterans in the city, specifically the five boroughs of New York City, and offers them, you know, therapeutic riding programs. More than, and you know, pre-pandemic, we did more than 650 lessons a week. Huge operation. Wow. So even though I had graduated from Gallup, I went on to be very involved you know, on, on the organization side, I, you know, I helped with a lot of fundraising with social media, marketing, solicitations of different kinds, different campaigns, donor cultivation. And then in the barn, you know, I worked on helping Gallup get new horses, helping to school them when I had time, you know, figuring out what they should eat. You know, I was very involved in both in the barn and not in the barn. So what that kind of gave me was, you know, continuing to give back to the organization that gave me so much, but also I definitely discovered deep passion for expanding ridership for riders with disabilities and, you know, taking my love for organizational leadership and putting that to good use. Because in college, I double majored in education and public policy, and I worked on Gallup throughout college remotely. So. The other thing that really influenced me, I would say, is that in May of 2020, right when the pandemic was getting started, the Brown Equestrian team, along with 11 other sports, got cut. 
And we thought that it was because COVID was draining the athletic budget. No, it was because the teams that got cut weren't excellent enough, whatever that is supposed to mean, because we were one of Brown's winningest teams. There's no reason why we weren't excellent enough to deserve being a varsity sport. So as captain, this was weeks after I had been made captain and captain from home because we were all in lockdown. You know, I started this campaign to get Brown Equestrian reinstated. It took a lot of coordinating with administrators, behind the scenes stuff. That's actually how I got connected to Tom O'Mara, the president of USEF. And at the time, he was still president-elect. So this was his first kind of initiative that he helped us with, you know, in, in, early on into his presidency. And it was really meaningful for me because, you know, if the Brown football team had gotten cut, you think the president of the NFL was going to get on the phone with Brown <laughs> yeah. and try to save them? Yeah. No. So, you know, it was super meaningful and it took coordinating with lawyers because by cutting Brown Equestrian, you know, a 20-something female roster, they were out of Title IX compliance. So, you know, I definitely learned a lot about athletics administration. And it was an intersection of, you know, a, it, was a, it was a diversity issue for sure, because it was, you know, they were suddenly underrepresenting female athletes. They were cutting their, the sport that had their only physically disabled athlete on it. We had the second lowest cost per athlete, second to track, and we were one of the more diverse teams. So not only was it an issue of inclusion, it was, you know, there were so many other things going on. And so that kind of intersection of advocacy, athletics administration, you know, caring about equestrian sports and trying to expand access, those things were all happening for me at once, which is how I ultimately found myself working for Special Olympics. (laughs) So cool. So as you... How did you get in touch with um, Special Olympics and you know, how did that kind of unfold? I honestly just applied through Handshake. There nice. was an opening and it was for an associate director of development position, which was pretty much the work I was doing for Gallup NYC because it was mostly fundraising and development. So I thought, you know, this I think this would be perfect for me. I care so much about expanding access for disabled athletes. I knew that Special Olympics had equestrian programs. And so, you know, I think that was really resonant with the folks who were talking to me in those early conversations. What they realized was that during the pandemic, you know, equestrian is a sport that's outdoor and socially distant. So it was, you know, the the wait list of of people who wanted to ride with Special Olympics tripled. And, you know, The equestrian world is very well resourced. We all know that. And, you know, the idea was that there's a whole world out there of very giving and very well resourced people that the folks at Special Olympics didn't really have a way of navigating, especially with this onset of huge demand. So I think that was definitely one of my selling points. And that's probably the main project that I'm working on right now. Yeah, I know you have, there's some big plans for, Florida this winter. How m- I don't know how much I- if you're like able to fully talk about everything, but talk to me a little um, bit about what it looks I'll, like for you. I will leave the Florida things as a stay tuned. But one thing that is coming up that I'm really excited to share is we are doing a No Stirrup November ride-a-thon. Oh, fun. Um, and so I'll just kind of explain the, the basis of it. So the first thing is that 
I mean, everybody does no stir up November, right? I feel like so many people do that. And especially because November is, you know, final season ish and gearing up for WEF. Everyone's doing it. And the idea behind no strip November is that it's supposed to be rewarding, right? So why not make it even more rewarding by adding a charitable component to it? So what it is, is the long-term goal of the Special Olympics Equestrian Program is to be able to send our riders to the Hampton Classic to do the Monday. But that would require getting people off of our wait list and expanding the number of facilities that we operate out of. And that takes a lot of fundraising. So the way it works is the ride-a-thon is occurring from November 1st to November 12th. And the idea is that the riders who are participating will log how many hours they spend doing no stirrups. Maybe they take four lessons a week. Maybe they just hack a couple days a week. They keep a log of how many, how much time they spend doing no stirrups. And, you know, they'll go to friends and family or, you know, any other connections that they might have and say, I'm doing no stirrup November. It's a ride-a-thon to support the riders of Special Olympics. And, you know, they might say, oh, and, you know, will you sponsor me? So the people who they're reaching out to might say, sure, I'll sponsor you at $5 an hour. You know, for every hour you spend doing no stirrups, I'll give you five bucks and it'll go to Special Olympics. So hopefully that pushes you to ride more and for longer without stirrups so that you total up more hours. And then you get as many sponsors as you, as you can. So our on our end, the goal is to get as many riders and as many barns participating because more riders means more sponsors and more donations. So, you know, hopefully it's rewarding in not just the sense that, you know, you're supporting, you know, riders who are competitive and want to show, but, you know, that you're working hard on yourself and thinking about, you know, the privilege of being able to do no stirrups, have to be in a program like the ones that, you know, we're all in. So that's the kind of the idea behind it. I love that. I think that's so smart, especially because so many people know November to be no stirrup November. So to mm-hmm. really be able to use it as an amazing opportunity to raise money is mm-hmm. brilliant. That's so smart. Thanks. Tell me a little bit about an area of this industry that you're really passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know that much about or doesn't talk that much about. I'm going to kind of echo some thoughts that I've already heard, but a little different. I love watching Carl Cook's Walking and Talking series on Instagram. And he did a really, really thoughtful episode of that where he talked about access to equestrian sports. Mostly he talked about the finances behind it, but you know, there are so many more layers to one of the reasons why I think college equestrian is so special. For example, at a, at a program like Brown where it's varsity is that, you know, we don't recruit, we take all walk-ons and we have an IHSA team. So there are walk trot levels through open, you know, three foot level riders. And so you know, that, and you know, the program is endowed mostly by alumni, but also part of the athletics budget. So that means that, for example, the working student who never got to show the girl who rode horses at summer camp, but couldn't afford it during the year or had other obligations. There were so many access points for people who formerly either, you know, didn't think that they were going to be able to be involved in equestrian sports after finishing their junior years or, you know, have always wanted to and never got the opportunity or maybe couldn't afford it. 
got access to it and got to be part of a team where no matter what level of sport they rode in, whether it was walk, trot or open, open, you know, all of their ribbons are weighted equally. They all make an equal contribution to the success of the team and nobody has to sit on the bench. You know, we bring, we don't necessarily have to bring our entire roster to every show, but everybody who comes is a game time player and and contributes equally to the success of the team. So, you know, that model is right now at least unique to those IHSA, IEA type programs. And as far as access beyond that goes, I mean, think about the people who graduate from college after being on an, on an IHSA team and they want to keep riding, but they're, you know, they're working. They've got student loans. They've got a job. How are they going to keep, you know, maintain their access? Investing in that younger group of individuals who want to be amateurs. They want to be adult amateurs, but maybe they can't, they can't afford it. You know, where are the points of access for them? Why should they have to wait 10 to 15 years before they can get back in the saddle. And I know that, like, for example, the IJSA or maybe the IEA, I didn't do IEA as a kid, so I might be wrong, but they have, like, alumni spots at, sh- at shows. But, you know, I envision that there's a lot of opportunities beyond that, and even for people with disabilities. The Monday at the Hampton Classic doesn't have to be the only show that offers that. There's, I mean, besides, you know, finances aside, why can't there be classes like that once a week at WEF? Why can't there, you know, why can't they be at Tryon at WEF Ocala? You know, my, a long-term goal as I continue to work alongside USEF and work for organizations like Special Olympics would be to see disability designated classes at all these workshops. Because, you know, the truth is the, the reason that they don't exist right now is not due, due to a lack of interest. Or a, or a lack of demand. There are plenty of disabled riders who would be beyond capable of showing, even at a walk shot level, even at a lead line level. So figuring out ways to expand our ridership to be more inclusive could include, you know, potentially programs like that. So, you know, having more conversations about why are the groups that aren't as represented in, in our sport, you know, why is that? And then, you know, kind of figuring out the puzzle pieces from there. Maybe the question is, they're not interested, you know, you know, why are people from this demographic not interested in our sport? And is that even the case? So I think, you know, more conversations about those preliminary questions would be super valuable. And I'm, I'm honestly really hopeful that the new USEF DEI action plan is going to start to tackle a lot of those, you know, root level questions. What needs to be done between you know, some of these big horse show associations now into having something like that where there are weekly classes at these big horse shows? My, I don't, I don't have, you know, an answer, but I imagine that finances are a lot of the issue. I don't know. I don't know if it's needing to get sponsors for those classes, mm-hmm. needing to get more space so we have enough rings sure. um, at different facilities to hold those classes or in between classes. I don't know if it's an issue of venue. You know, do we have the facilities for a rider in a wheelchair to mount a horse at this horse show? Is it a matter of, you know, oh, our horse show is out in the middle of nowhere. How would any riders with disabilities who, for example, have medical equipment get to our horse show? Mm-hmm. How, you know, what would their accommodations look like? I don't, you know, I'm, I assume that those are some of the big factors. Right. And if, you know, if, if the horse show venues are not, I'm not saying that they are, just hypothetically. 
if they were not interested in doing shows like that or having classes like that because of the level that they are, like if they're only interested in holding disability disability designated classes, if the writers can do two, six and up, that would be a real shame. You know what I mean? That is such a limiting factor and it's not important. At the end of the day, you know, especially for people who value horsemanship, fence height doesn't really matter. So, you know, I don't know if it's an issue of crowdsourcing, you know, is this, are these classes going to be well attended? Is the spectatorship going to be good? You know, all of those types of things are at least in my, at least in my head, not the important things that, you know, that would define whether or not we give access like that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think as you continue to look into seeing what's possible, it'll definitely kind of present itself with a whole new series of challenges and hoops and things like that. But I think with anything big and exciting and and in order to really move the needle, it's Mm -hmm. amazing that there's people in the industry like you that are willing to do -hmm. that to make these big changes happen. Yeah. And this is something that I know that Ren Zimmerman has come on your podcast before. So this is something that she's also really passionate about. And I didn't, she, I, I don't know like what the status is, but I know that she has, you know, plans and initiatives already underway to make this type of thing happen. Great. That's so, that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice too. Yeah. In the same token, there are others out there that, and just like you were saying, it's not like there's just a couple of you that would be interested in these classes. There are so many people that would love the opportunity to be able to show more frequently or show at a, you know, like a venue that they have been, you know, like watching and, you know, keeping up with over the years and and to Mm -hmm. be able to have classes where they can be represented as well, I think is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Your story is so incredible and I am so excited for everyone to hear it because I think it's so inspiring and so exciting to see where the rest of your career is taking you. You're still you're still a little baby, so but you've already done some incredible things. So I am so excited to continue to follow your journey and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much and thank you so much for having me on. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.